Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. What's going on, everybody? Hope you are having a wonderful week so far. So before we start, I've got a new record coming coming out. It's out now on Trick. It's called Rock With Me, and the second record is called Lust. Go check it out if you haven't. Also, before we start the podcast, don't forget to hit subscribe. Um, follow it, like it. It just makes sure that the podcast keeps going. So this week on the podcast... One and only Andy McDougal. Andy is a producer, a mix engineer, and a master engineer. He masters every single one of my records that comes out, or 99% of them. Um, I really like him as a person. His insight into the industry, his technical insight as well is amazing. Um, I thought this podcast was going to get really geeky, but it didn't. Um, so it was just a really good conversation. And then we spoke about music and lots of things to do with music. And then we kind of got into his mastering business, AMPM Audio. Um, and he's mastered for some of the biggest artists in the world from Calvin Harris. Um, he does a lot of tour rooms. I'm pretty sure he does a lot of Salado's work. Um. yeah he's done a lot and achieved a lot and is a very insightful guy so without further ado Andy McDougall and we're live Andy how's it going mate good man how are you yeah pretty good I, I actually like I had a hernia operation this week last week um so I'm like just coming to the like the end of the recovery being good mm-hmm. um so this is like my first bit of work that I've done. I, although this isn't really fucking work, is it? Let's be honest. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's good, man. I can't really complain. Can't really complain. Where whereabouts in the world are you at the moment? I'm in uh, Ealing, uh, which is West London. I didn't know um, you were in London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was uh, like originally a, like a group in Yorkshire. Yeah. Uh, but I moved to London like. 15 years ago okay to make it in the the big city uh in music and uh it's going all right i suppose yeah not bad man not bad um so before like we get into it like i kind of want to get a bit about like what you do and kind of where it started and kind of like just give the people listening um you're like a man behind the scenes as well. I know you have an artist project as well, but from like our relationship, I know you mostly through mixing and mastering, um, mm. which is like a really key part of 
music, not just in dance music, in every type of genre of music. Um, and I think a lot of people don't know about it, which is why I wanted to get you on, because I think it's really, really interesting. Um, but how did it start from growing up in Yorkshire to moving to London and, and kind of going through that? Was, was, was mixing and mastering like you're like you woke up and was like, I want to do this? Or was it producing music, then the mixing and mastering came? Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 there was never any like intent to be uh, to, to be a mastering engineer or to be uh, to do mixing. Mm. I, I was always I was I wanted to be an artist, and actually that's still my ambition. Yeah. Um, I, I I love writing music, uh, but li- you know living in London is expensive. Yeah. And uh, the so I kind of I used to write music when there was money to be made mm. from selling. You know, like there were CV compilations still. Uh, and, you know, I kind of got used to getting pretty decent paydays from tracks coming out on compilations. Yeah. And then when I moved to London, that kind of dropped off a cliff because of because of streaming. Yeah. But no, I mean, I, basically, I started when I was about eleven. Mm. Like I found it. Like uh, I don't know if you know what a uh, fast tracker is. No, what's that? It's like a, so it's like um, you've got a tracker uh, like. So they're basically like software to write music, yeah. but they're vertical scrolling and um, alphanumeric. Mm-hmm. And so it goes not to nine and then A, B, C, D, E, F. And that's your 16 for your, your times for your music, right? So that was like a kind of uh, niche way of making music yeah. back when I was like 10, 11 years old. Mm. And I found this thing on a floppy disk and I was just like fascinated by it. And it came packaged up with um, all like jungle and uh, hardcore and break sounds mm. and i was just obsessed you know like when you find something like that when you're 11 and yeah. i look like you know at 11 i loved the prodigy so i was trying to recreate prodigy tunes and all sorts yeah so uh, you know i actually started really young um with, uh, with young. like making music mm. um and just kind of you know got pretty obsessed with it yeah and i used to write like prog and like prog house um and trance, and like trance was massive in Yorkshire when I was growing up. Um, so when I went away to uni, I was just like writing a lot of um, trance and progressive house, you know, yeah. the kind of session degree. Like I used to go to Gatecrasher all the time, right? Um, and so it was anything that was going on there. So it, it, it would vary from like Mauro Picotto to Sasha Digweed to oh, Paul Van Dyke doing his epic six-hour sets. So that, uh, you know, it was, it was amazing having that music, and that was what inspired me early on um yeah and then i kind of never really intended to do it like properly you know mm. what i mean like it was always like a kind of really fun hobby yeah. i worked in in finance okay after uni and then one day Is that what I you just, studied uh no i studied uh, environmental science but, okay but that wasn't for me either um <laughs> so, <laughs> so i went into finance because i well, lots of money right and then uh, started it and i just realized that everybody that i worked with they were just awful people mm. they would just do anything to make a bit of extra money you know? yeah and i was just like yeah that's not for me either so you, kind of you, it's, it's like dramatically. it's like those um all those documentaries that you kind of see on netflix right about the environment and then you see that it's just like big corporations behind it just doing like wording everything correctly just to make it sound like you're doing a better thing and then mm, yeah. realistically you're doing absolutely nothing i saw yeah. it, i saw sainsbury's which is a anybody listening in america or anywhere else it's like a big popular supermarket 
in the UK. They would they're doing something about like I I think it was like eat less meat and eat more vegetables or something like that for the environment. And I'm just like, where's the science behind all of this? <laughs> like, but it's it's like it's mad what these corporations are doing just to try and sell a bit more because that's all they're doing it for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, they, they say basically wherever the wind blows, that's what happens. They are just weather vanes. So Mm -hmm. the big popular thing at the moment is, uh, vegan, then they'll just do loads of stuff about vegan, like advertising, you know, they they are corporations to make profit. Of course so, they are. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was very briefly a part of that, and um, yeah, I don't know. Like I worked with a lot of like the people, the clients, were very wealthy people. Yeah, and they just were very miserable, and they just were very miserly. And yeah. like, oh, God, that's not for me, you know. And then on the weekends, I go out raving. I'm yeah. like, this is for me. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. yeah, one day I just was like, I, I just went no no more of this mm. and i quit very dramatically like a, you know had a slanging match with my boss and then i had to work my two-week notice so that was awkward <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah and then after that i was like right i'm gonna and you know i got home and i was living with my parents at the time yeah and i, I went home and i'm like dad i've quit my job i'm gonna do my music and he's like what the fuck? <laughs> So that, that didn't really go down well. And then it took a good, like, 10 or 15 years for, you know, it to really start to come together where, it, you know, it, it's a very opaque thing, to, the music industry, to people who don't know about it from the outside. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'm making music. He's like, well, what, is it in the charts? I'm like, no, it's not in the charts. Like, well, what's the point then? Yeah, well, yeah. You know, so, and it took a really long time um, to kind of get across to him that it was actually going quite well. Mm. Uh, and now he's like all over it and he's super, super proud. But yeah. How did you get into it? It's tough, isn't it? When it's like that with your parents. Um, mm. How did I get into it? Years ago when I was, I think when I was from like the age of nine, I always wanted to DJ. And then like I, we had like a family friend who did like local, like discos at the, like the local caravan site. So I used to go and help him when I was young and then did weddings and, then I was like, oh, my brother got me into like dance music as uh, what we would say is dance music. It was like trancey, housey kind of stuff. Um, and then I went to see Faithless Live and was like, oh, I'm hooked. And then that that was it for me. And I think <clears throat> I learned how to DJ proper, like mix when I was 13, started writing when I was 14. And then like always always took it seriously but was like i didn't i you don't ever understand how what you have to do right in the industry like you don't realize even back then how important making music is in the in the industry to kind of get your name out there and things like that so mm-hmm. i didn't really i think i i lived in ibiza i was djing i had residencies out there from the age of 17 to 20 and then 21 i was like fuck ibiza off let's go and actually make some music properly mm-hmm. um, and like really knuckle down. And then it took me f- three, four years to get to the point where I was touring full time. Mm. Um, that's a very, that's pretty, that's pretty quick as well. 
Yeah. Some people laughed at it for a decade and never see the kind of success that you, you had. You have. Yeah, I was super lucky, really lucky. Um, but I, I also have this like really weird, stupid kind of personality where if I want to do something, I'm really going to fucking do everything to do it. And yeah. like, I also, I, I kind of did it very like chronological, if that's the right w- word for it, where I was like, okay, so what music do I like? And out of that music, who's doing it really well? And what record label do I need to be part of for me to be touring? So, and that was Dirty Bird for me at the time. Um, mm. I did a few things before that, um, but it was just like, how can I, how can I get my music heard to the most amount of people, and also how can I get booked? through a record label because no one's going to book me otherwise if you know what I mean at this moment in time and how can I kind of create value for myself um yeah and just looked at it like that and was like okay Dirty Bird is the one and then just worked worked my way up it's a bit different nowadays though because it's record labels aren't necessarily there's some record labels that are like that and there's some record like I wouldn't even say Dirty Bird is like that anymore um but I think it's just about, for me, it was just about finding a crew that, like, I could really be part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like, I did everything to be part of Dirty Bird. Like, from, mm-hmm. from day one with Barkley, um, Claude, like, I would, I'd, like, we didn't even know each other. And I'd, like, do, like, Skype calls with him and, like, make sure that he doesn't forget who I am. And mm. like I would send him, I'd write so much music, so I'd send him like a new record every week. Um, I think there was like one year which I was like the most released person on Dirty Bird, and like just I just would always just make sure I was there, just be that annoying, annoying person, but not in an annoying way. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's got to where I am now, really. I mean, it's a it's a really good strategy. I, I, you know, so I I want to be an artist, but the problem is I don't really know what music I like. Yeah. So I, you know, I at the moment I have four projects. I have a prog house one. Mm-hmm. Even within that prog house one, I have variations. Like sometimes I'm. Uh, so I've, I've never gone, what's the sort of music that will help me get gigs? Yeah. I think mainly because I don't actually like DJing at all. Uh, I'll leave that to people who are really good at it. Yeah. And like, I prefer writing music. So I've always been like, I just, I kind of like write music. And I think, what what is it that I'm feeling at the moment? And sometimes it'll just be listening to a playlist or listening to yeah. a mix and just going, I love that sound maybe I'll try and do something along those lines or like, you know, kind of mm. combine those, maybe I'll, you know, come up with an idea. But what ends up happening is that I'm pulled in too many different directions. Yeah. Like if, if 10 years ago, well, like I'm, I'm 40, I'm 40 next month. Right? Yeah. So if, if when I kind of started writing music 20 years ago, seriously, I suppose, I just said, I'm going to make this yeah. and this is going to be my sound and I'm going to stick to it. 
I would have had so much more success. Yeah. But week week after week, I would flip between. You know, I, I used to be. I used to make trance, and I did did okay. Yeah. In trance. Um, but then I kind of thought, oh, it's not really for me. I lost the, the whole like sound of the genre and the way that. I don't know. It just lo- it just lost its magic I think, yeah, yeah. for me. So I just moved away from it completely, and I got really into like more underground stuff when I moved mm-hmm. to London. Um, so I started writing house and breaks and all sorts, and there was never any actual concerted direction to go. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah. These are the labels I'm going to sign to. This is how I'm going to build my name up, and I, that's I think why. Uh, like you know, I've written, I've written so many tracks, and there's been plenty of successes with individual tracks, yeah. but never as a kind of uh, like as, as an artist uh, overall. Um, whereas when it comes to the business, like the business side of things, like AMPM Audio, I'm so much more focused with that. Yeah. Like it's like I have a really clear strategy. I know where I'm going over why, the next couple of years. Why do you think that is, though? I don't know. I think that musically, I'm almost um, musically, I'm indecisive. Mm. But business, when it comes to business, I'm quite, I guess, switched on. But, like, kind of. Yeah, I guess the. I guess the, what I would kind of argue against that is that you're in the music business. So why can't what what are you struggling with doing that to music? So like converting your business mind to the music side of it and looking at it as and i i don't necessarily agree you should always do this but looking at it, the music side of thing the creative side of thing as a business that, mm. that's that's all i did if you know what i mean mm. that's for me that's all and <clears throat> for like there's two ways and there's millions of ways you can do it but there's two ways that i i look at it that you how you can kind of well maybe three ways one which we all know is have a hit record right that's that's the one way to kind of go go there but i think sometimes if you have a hit record and you don't have the foundations it's pretty hard to kind of keep that going Mm. um so the second one is go sign to a record label that gives you an audience um and then which is what i did to start with and then thirdly start your own thing and build it over years and years which is what i'm doing now but the third thing does take time takes a lot longer Mm -hmm. um and money yeah and money but you you don't have to spend that nowadays you don't have to spend that much money like you can how like how much realistically does it cost to 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 release a record um apart from your time writing the record mix mix and mastering artwork like you don't really like you need a good distributor, which doesn't cost you. They just take percentages. Um, as long as you've got great branding, which let's say cost 250 to 500 pounds or dollars a release. Like I know that's a lot of money, but you don't even need that. If you know what I mean, you can, you can mm. make it cheaper. Um, I think the big, the biggest cost, and probably the most, the one that established labels have, almost for free is that early on you have to buy exposure so advertising promo those uh, kinds of things i i agree with you to a certain extent um but if the if the branding does well and you can get it to enough djs to play it which we all can 
if you know what I mean, we we can DM enough DJs and ask for their promo email or ask for their email address. Like I don't think the value of promo companies now are what that's why they're so much cheaper than what they used to be. Because mm. an email used to be so much more important than what it is now. The amount of people that I get asking for my email address on a weekly basis is ridiculous. Um Do you give it out? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't see any like do I listen to promos very rarely. <laughs> <laughs> um but I will if somebody sends me a personal email address and goes um will I sent you this message on Instagram here's I'm from here this is what I'm trying to do like I will listen to it. It might take me a week or two but I'm going to listen to it. Mm, that's uh, cool. Um but I think like realistically let's say let's say 500 quid a release. And that's that's expect that's that's putting some money, but I know there's a lot of labels that don't even spend that mm-hmm. um, behind their releases, and that's how that's how much I would it would probably cost. Um, but I think by doing that, you're growing a brand that yeah that allows you to do what you want, and you don't have to be in the in the confines of other people's sounds and labels. Yeah, um, and you don't have to deal with like the a and r so if you if you write a track and you're happy with it and you send it over and then they want changes or yeah. you know it, you know your sound can be compromised or they might just not get it yeah which, totally. you know, or you know there's like labels often have considerations like if you don't have that bigger profile already even if it's a great track mm. they won't sign it because yeah. then you're not big enough yeah yeah so, like, my my plan uh, is to start a label. Okay, it was we were going to launch it a year and a half ago, yeah, but we didn't. Time. In the end, yeah, <laughs> yeah, very much a long time. So we've written some more music, and it's it's techno. It's sort of like a combination of techno, so like the kind of big rolling techno mm. low ends, but then with the prog progressive sort of synths and yeah. a little bit more melody. Because I I don't know I, I love techno, but it's gone a bit hard hard house recently it's gone a bit trancey as well hasn't it yeah yeah and i'm like now i already did that all 20 years ago like i'd like to hear something different and uh yeah so kind of like uh to trying to trying to get that the clarity and the the, you know the the depths of techno but without the cheesiness that seems to have crept into a little to a certain extent it's got it's got cheesy hasn't it and it's got like so samey, which is such a shame. I was mm. I was uh, on Instagram the other day. Do you know A Vision or A Vision? He's, mm. he's like a. You should check him out. His music's mm. insane. Um, mm-hmm. He's like a New York techno producer, but it's like very New York techno. It's not like what you'd expect as as techno today. Is like very groovy, very like percussion based funky is fucking amazing anyway he um he posted a video of uh boiler room doing like they had some dj playing a techno set or they said it was a techno set and she was literally playing the girl that was djing although she was smashing it was playing um tiesto lethal industry and we were like this this is trance (laughs) i mean like it's uh it's a great track fucking amazing track there's some of the the kind of roots of techno now. It comes from that sort of sound, yeah. for sure. But 
yeah, that is that was just straight up front. <laughs> it was great. I loved that record yeah. when it was out. It's so mad, isn't it, to think what, like where he's gone as an artist from like what he was known for to what he's mm. known for now, and I think that goes back to like what you're saying about like going from sound to sound. I think it's it's actually okay to jump sounds as long as the story is is kind of documented correctly. Because mm. I think there's a lot of uh, let's like, let's say for instance like Maceoplex. Like although he's like one of a kind, no one could ever emulate his career because it's just unbelievable what he's done. But if you listen to the stuff that he released at the beginning to the stuff yeah, that he it was kind of like um like quite housey deep, deep housey yeah yeah like I, I, I love the records as well but same. it's such a tangent he's gone off on same but but i think but he's he's done the journey so well he's done the story so well that you're you can get away with it um he's kept his credibility just absolutely perfectly yeah i mean like, he's way up there he's one of my all-time favorite same, artists man. just phenomenal uh, something about the way he produces his low end i don't know how he does it everything sounds huge yeah um Hard- yeah no he's great hardware i reckon did you think yeah i think there's a lot of hardware there I don't know though. Like he used to be a he used to be an engineer, didn't he? Oh, did he? Before, yeah, like a, a ghost producer before he was massive plex. And he did like he was he's um he's got another alias. Matrix, Matrix, and Mario Italo. Yeah, yeah. So I think right. that he he's had you know like a few years as a producer. Yeah. Before kind of so he, it's like he's he's kind of tested out a few things and then honed in on this one and made a success out. Out of this, yeah, but I think that often so you know that that's often the case. Is and one of the best things about that you know the music can we make is that you can do something, you can kind of build a name up, and then if it all goes off the rails, you start just again. go, yeah. start again, yeah. and you learn from your mistakes, don't you? Yeah, that's that's one thing that I haven't done really. I've never like I've never changed my name. I've got aliases that aren't really aliases, like, because I don't release on them, like, properly. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I've, I I don't know. I've just kind of, like, every mistake I've done, I've just, like, worked it out and just changed it for the next one for Will Clark, which I don't know if is necessarily the, the best thing um, to do. Because I think sometimes starting from fresh is, like, so nice. But also daunting as shit. Like, <laughs> if I needed to start a whole new project today, like fuck knows, man. <laughs> I mean, you'd have a lot. You'd have all the contacts. Uh, you'd have the kind of, you know, nouse of like, oh, I did that wrong last time. Yeah. I'll make sure I don't do it. But then, I guess the, so. The problem that I seem to be having at the moment is that I'm like, oh, I'm starting starting fresh with a new alias mm. and a new project. But I'm like, well, I've, I've done a few projects before and things have kind of not gone, you know, like the, it's been fine, but I changed the sound so dramatically that the yeah. fan base changes or whatever. So this time round, um, I'm, I'm overly cautious about mm. starting 
because I'm like, I want to make sure it's perfect to the point where I've not even released anything yet. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, that it, it's, it's almost like uh, a hindrance. Yeah. And I think we just need to, you know, go through the tunes, sign them off and just say that is done now. Yeah. Put them out and just see what happens. Like, I don't know if you get this, but where you sit on a track for a while mm. and you've listened to it a few too many times, maybe, and then you go, "Is it actually good?" Yeah. And I think I'm in that situation with mm. some of them. Um, yeah, yes. it's tough, that isn't it? I, I've, I don't, I don't really do that. I, I've done that on things where I'm releasing a record that doesn't sound sound like me, um, like. Uh, I think you mastered them, like Run Run. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the record I did with uh, Jaded and Arco. Um, like that was like not really a Will Clark record, but it, we loved writing it and it just sounded right at the time. But mm-hmm. looking back at it, I'm like, oh, I pro- I'm probably never going to play that in a DJ set. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know releasing it, I was like, oh, this is a bit weird. Um, but... I think sometimes you just got fucking. What's the worst? What is the worst that's going to happen? As long for me, as long as the record sounds good, and I know that it's, I can stand by my word and be like, yes, it's a good record. Mm-hmm. Um, then I'm like, fuck it, let's just do it. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, yeah, I suppose you DJ, and I, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't even know if I ever will. Yeah, but like. Uh, I suppose when like you when you're sitting down writing something, you're kind of also have a consideration that yeah. maybe it'll fit in the set at this point. Or, yeah. You know, like the, so you're you have that it's of impetus to mm. write stuff, but also that audience to test it on. And if you see something working, then that is obviously that's a big buzz. But it's yeah. also a really good motivator to finish it off, put it out because you know it works. And I guess it, like so. I, we we had me and my mate Hilton. You do you know Hilton Caswell? He used to run a wicked venue called Gigglem in um, Southwest London. No, I don't know. No. Yeah. So he. So me and him, we we partnered up, and we were like uh, a duo called Trilucid. Mm-hmm. And we had a residency at Gallery yeah. on Fridays at Ministry, Ministry. of Sound. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was great because it was it was generally like nine times out of ten it was warming up for yeah. whichever headliner it was. So that that fitted in with the proggy sound that yeah. we were making and got to play these tracks and see which ones worked and see which ones didn't. And uh, that it was really motivating. But then, you know, just for various reasons that fizzled out mm-hmm. um, and, you know, the, we kind of went our separate ways. Um like well, me and Hilton are still working together, but we've, uh, yeah, gallery kind of changed Stops. the way they were yeah, going, yeah. yeah. Um, and so losing that changed your kind of relationship with writing. Yeah, it's like it wasn't writing. It's like, oh, we've got a gig Friday. Let's get a new mm. tune smashed out so we can test it out in the crowd. Now it's almost so open ended. Yeah, where, uh, you know, it, it's it take it's more more kind of. Uh, difficult to finish something off because you can't test it out and go, it works amazing. You, ha- you send it out to your friends and sound people out. And, yeah. Yeah. Don't know. Do you, that, do, you ever, do you ever, do you ever engineer for people? Yeah, I used to, I, I used to do that. So when I first moved to London, so about starting about sort of 15 years ago, I was engineering for people. Yeah. 
when I was making... Mate, one sec. Is your window open? Uh, oh, yeah. Hang on a sec. Come, sorry. sorry, bud. It's just coming... <laughs> I think it's kids kids closing yeah, it's, out from yeah, school. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's much better. Yeah, sorry, mate. <laughs> I think he like fell over and he was crying. I didn't yeah. even notice. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Yeah, uh, you were talking about engineering. Yeah. So yes, I did. I that was that was my main income for quite a few years. Yeah. Um. And yeah, I was doing uh, tech house mm. because that was like the, that was the big thing. I did like produce tracks for all sorts of labels. Yeah. Uh, Snatch when they were like big, like a really big label. Um, tour room and saved, and yeah. uh, you know, pretty like pretty much every tech house label yeah. I've, I've written something for. Um, and I, yeah, because I think that's good. what I'm thinking is if you if what you're saying is you're not DJing, is like, would you ever consider working with somebody? as like a project where they're 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 the dj you're writing music for them but it's kind of like a 50 50 deal where you write all the music they do all the dj and and kind of between you both you do the marketing but you're just like you're not even there like no one sees you no one knows you're part of it if that makes sense yeah so that i mean uh that's exactly what we're doing Mm. uh with the techno so i've partnered up with my mate phil yeah um and he so he's a dj he's a cracking dj um so we've been making techno but then uh, that, like that project started uh we were writing for it and then we decided we were going to start a label you know we can't we sent our tracks out to four or five top labels mm. but the, the feedback was nice tracks but we don't know who you are yeah and so we just thought okay the only thing only option really left is to start a label ourselves because yeah. i don't see any point in sending them to like you know lower level labels because maybe they do a good job maybe they don't but it's a bit you know it's it seems better to kind of hold on to them and build your own brand like exactly like you're doing it's 100 percent the way 100 percent the way it, it takes longer but and it costs a bit more money but it's uh, unless you get that unless you can sign to it, this is the thing is like even like with the big big labels you need like an EP that does really well for you to kind of grow big from that. Like, cause these big labels are releasing so much music. Like if they're releasing a record a week or a record every other week, like you're just going to get lost in the kind of, in the, the traffic of releases. Um, mm. It has to be. Guess, like some of it's bragging rights as well. Or, you know, like, so you, you release track on uh, drum codes. Mm. So I'm t- like, in terms of, Mm, yeah. yeah. So in terms of like a uh, brand to be associated with, that's massive. Yeah. And it's you know it's it's got a really good reach. So when you're doing gigs and you know and you put your name and then what label you're on after, you know, like that on that that on the credits looks great. Yeah. You know, it's, it is a big part of it, even if it doesn't necessarily, um, you know, that track on its own may not kind of you know, do amazingly yeah. or, or have that bigger reach, but the actual kind of bragging rights mm. is, is quite important. I think. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree. I totally agree. It comes, I, it does, it does help. I think 
to a certain extent um, when the brand of the record label has a sell themselves. Like I say it all the time, Anjuna Deep, the whole Anjuna kind of vibe, They their fan base is ridiculous. Like they release so much music and they're, the artists that grow big from Anjuna Deep grow massive. Mm-hmm. And it's purely because the fan base is just so strong. Mm. So strong. I, I mean, uh, I, so I, I mastered, I've signed to Anjuna in the past. Yeah. Um, and I like I send demos to them, so there's a couple that they've picked up recently, which is nice. Um, but one of the the best, like so, Grum, uh, who's a mm-hmm. Scottish artist, he's su- such a great producer, makes wicked tunes. And um, he, like a few years ago, he kind of pivoted his sound a little bit and signed to Anjuna. Yeah, and then he's been working with them, and now he's like one of their core artists. Yeah. you know. Um. And I've been mastering some of the stuff recently that he's been doing for Anjuna. Mm. And he's got a, like, it's a quite a unique sound. And it's not necessarily within the, uh, you, you know, like, it's it not not necessarily within the sound of the label. Yeah. But they've obviously, you know, given him enough artistic freedom yeah, to, yeah. that he can write stuff that they're supporting and backing. And yeah. It doesn't it fits in with the label because they've essentially opened up the scope of what they're releasing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Like their fan base is huge. It's wild. But when they, they back their artists as well, you know, they, they you know, they, it's not just a matter of releasing some records. They put loads of events on and they book the people who are part of it. It's, is, it's a know, proper label to me, for me is like, mm. is that it's not about, growing the the head artist that owns the record label it's about re- releasing really good music and growing the, the label artist really mm-hmm. um yeah. which for me is what i want to do with with all we have is now is like actually release records i only want to sign like two or three artists a year and just really just like release them and and get them touring and <clears throat> bring them touring with me get them touring by themselves Mm-hmm. Um, and then just really kind of help artists grow rather than do more than what a record label does is uh, nowadays is just releasing your record. Like I, I don't just want to do that. Um, I don't just want to do the touring. It's kind of a bit of everything. I want to be able to have like my management team help manage them, bring things in for them and things like that. I think it's really important because like, like we said, like releasing a record is easy now it's so mm-hmm. easy there's no real skill in it apart from contacts um and if you end up talking to enough people you have all the contacts yourself so mm-hmm. definitely do that man definitely do it right with the um the idea of bringing the, just a couple of artists on each year will you have a label plus management and then combine the two so if you're doing the, the label, you can help uh, build artists up, mm. put events on, book them for your events, and then have them on a, on an artist's management. Or will you will you have a management that you work with, or how? What do you think you do there? So my it'll probably be a bit of both. Um, it's kind of just down to whatever the artist wants. Um, so let's say, for instance. The, the record that you've just mastered for us, the Basque Dale, um, that's coming out in February, I think. 
like he's the first guy that we've signed um to the label and i've he's a really good mate of mine like i've known him for a few years his music's unreal um and i'm taking him on tour with me next year for a few shows and i was just like mate do you want to do this like i we can help like he doesn't need to be he doesn't need to do music full time he's like an engineer he has other businesses it's not something that he's kind of ever thought it was always a hobby um until i was like do you want to do you want to fucking do it so yeah like with him it's like it's just bringing the whole story together mm-hmm. and kind of he's got some great releases on some great labels but it's just been a hobby for him um mm-hmm. so it's like how do we turn that into a bit more of a career um so yeah i I think and then there might be some artists that like i signed that like completely nobodies um but have great music so it's like okay well how do we build a picture how do we how do we tell your story before anybody knows so like come on tour with me for a year if you know what i mean um do a remix for me um let's let's get you remixes on some other labels let's build like Mm -hmm. a bit of a picture up before we then release your record um but the good thing about like the team that run my label they're like all for it as well um so it's just about and my manager ryan it's it's just him and i um he manages one other guy called alex i forgot his artist name alex soul um who's who's very brand new and like makes wicked music um so it's still like i want to i want to build like a family that we can do everything ourselves and we don't need to kind of outsource anything um Mm -hmm. because for me that's just so much more important that is so similar to how i think about it all in terms of uh, it, you know, all the people that I've worked with or, like, friends that I've met along the way, you know, most of my friends, 99% of my friends have met either through music or totally. through clubbing or, you yeah. know, and we all have that, that shared love. And um, all of them have, a like, a burning passion for mm. it the same way that I do, but not all of them have the uh, opportunities to, you know, or, or the, the kind of... Um, flexibility to be yeah. able to throw themselves at it full time. Yeah. So I've got, you know, like I've got a mate and he's making really fantastic, super raggy, like hardcore techno. Mm. Um, and I've been kind of helping him and steering him because uh, I think, you know, he, he's got something really great about the music he makes. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, ultimately, I want to be doing this as my job and career and spend my life doing this mm. but so do other people totally. but so do other of my friends and if there's a way for me to be able to help my friends do this yeah. then it's that's great because then we can share it together exactly. that's even more fun exactly. and even more exciting when it's with your friends too yeah, yeah it's for me it's, it's there's nothing more important than that it's just by being able to <clears throat> like obviously there comes a point when you have to concentrate on yourself to then be able to give that to other people or to be able to help other people. But once you're at the point where you can, and like, I'm I'm still small in the grand scheme of artists. Like I, 
and I'm not saying that in like to kind of fish for compliments. I like I have a great life and I have a great career, but from where I want to be compared to where I am now is nowhere near where where we're at. Um, but if I can help somebody in the smallest way, then let's do it. If you know what I mean, and mm-hmm. let's kind of grow something together so that we can all look back in twenty, thirty years time and go, we had the best fucking time. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's that's what it's about for me. Yeah, one hundred percent. Like definitely that that and 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 building something as well, yeah. something that you can look back on and go, we did that really well. Mm. And yeah, that that for me, I, I you know, I I feel that it's my my focus came away from music. I think because mm. I got like I said, I really love mastering. Yeah, like there's something incredibly satisfying about it. You get sent a record and. You know it's a good record, yeah. but there's maybe a couple of things that could be finessed in mm. the production to bring out the best in the master. And then you master it, send it back, and, you know, generally it's a pretty, you know, it's a positive experience, <laughs> yeah. right? And, it, you know, like, send people, send it back, and people are like, oh, wait, it's sick, and then play it out, and like, oh, it sounded great. Yeah. The, the way it's... Um, kind of tied up in a neat little bow like they send it to you you have a listen you send it back maybe a couple of times get it absolutely perfect um and then it's like a job done and it's really yeah, it's complete. really satisfying to have that that sort of quite compact job yeah. that's done and finalized and i do you know on a really busy day probably 10 maybe 15 masters yeah um i mean it, it depends on the t- like some of them take 20 minutes half an hour some of them take an hour yeah um, you know, it's, it varies from from track to track. So sometimes I'm really super busy and like doing a lot on one track. And sometimes, you know, you get stuff sent through and you're just like, wow, it's a breeze. It doesn't even really need yeah. to do it. But the the problem is, it's like the that is e- it's easy to fall into. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, I've got ten masters in my inbox. I'll do those ten masters because I know that I'll tick those off and that's it. But then yeah. I won't have written any music that day. Mm. And that, as I got a better, kind of like a bigger reputation, I suppose, and recommended to more artists, it just completely got away from me. Yeah. And I was, uh, you know, up until fairly recently, I was doing seven days a week mm. of mastering, somewhere between, you know, on a weekend doing like four or five hours yeah. a day, and on, on during the week doing 10 hours. And I was enjoying it, but it got on top of me. Yeah. And then I thought, what am I doing? Like, my intent was never to do this mm. as a job. It was a way of earning a bit of money so that I could afford to write music. Yeah. And I just got so locked into the building the business and having a successful business and working with ever increasingly higher profile artists yeah. and got caught up in that like kind of buzz of that yeah. that I completely lost sight of the music mm. side of things. And then, you know, like you, you asked me earlier on about if I um, like engineered, and I did for for years. And actually, one of the things that is, making music is a like it takes emotion and it takes energy. Yeah. And if you're doing that on tap for people four days a week, it takes it out of you. And it really, really takes it out of you so much. And I never realised. It was actually the pandemic starting and not being able to do studio sessions yeah. that I had 
a year of not working with people and I just felt so much better, mm. so much more clear headed and more energy. And I was like, I think that was a, you know, a kind of realization that that probably wasn't the best use of my time creative yeah. energy and such so well there, there also um, comes a point of it where it's yeah you earn money you have to pay your rent or your mortgages or whatever like but there comes a point where we do music to make to to have fun and to <clears> enjoy <throat> it and it you don't necessarily want it to become a job um or you don't want that job aspect i i know i used to engineer for people and like it would be like oh god i got this person coming down and as much as i love the process and i love like you have to perform like they're mm -hmm. paying you for your time and then you have to perform. And if you don't perform, you're like, well, what the fuck? Like they, there's your, and you can't perform all the time when you're writing. Did you find that you were more critical of yourself than the people you were working? Like did, I definitely, I've, I found with writing for people, if I, if it wasn't, turning out really well i got really frustrated at myself mm. and i was overly critical yeah for me it was like i would i don't know actually because i think for me we'd always churn something out i mm. think what it would be is like five years later when i listen to that stuff i'm like oh i could have done better than that mm. um and i feel a bit stupid that i charged them for that um but I'm I'm now working on a project now writing with somebody um, that you actually mix and master. But like for mm. me, that project is more than just like I don't get paid for it. It's it's kind of a passion project, and mm. it's don't get me wrong. I will get paid for it eventually when with with splits and things like that. But it's more like. I want this person to succeed and I want to make the best music for this person that they want to make. And mm -hmm. I think that for me is like a really happy balance with mm -hmm. the engineering side of things because there's, there's not really any pressure for me. Like if I don't make a record that's really good, it's then it's not coming out. Yeah. Um, and if we do a writing session and it doesn't go well, it doesn't, it is what it is if you know what i mean it's just the joys um and i think that's nice because there's no actual like finance being um there's, there's no finances involved so i i don't feel like i'm wasting their time and i don't feel like i'm getting cheap skated out yeah it's time. not like if you you have that session and they're paying x amount to the session yeah and at the end of it, if it's not finished, you don't beat yourself up and they yeah. don't feel shortchanged. Exactly. You yeah. just go, we'll start again next time. Or Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's that's what I'm basically doing mm. with... Like, there's three friends I'm working with. One is a prog house project, one's a techno project, and one is, like, cool, like, kind of deep house yeah. stuff. Um, all three of the guys I'm working with are great DJs, mm. and... Um, we just need some tunes out. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're, they're gigging anyway, so it's just a matter of building on mm, on that. Yeah. Uh, but it means that the production sessions are fun. Yeah. And also, rather than them paying me and saying, make me a track like this, mm. they come around and we say, what sort of tune should we make? Yeah. Like, and we'll discuss it together, and it's a collaboration. Yeah. And that's way more enjoyable. Mm. Yeah, totally. Um, I totally agree. I think that's what it should be, really. Um, 
because otherwise you just lose the like actual art of it and it's then it just becomes formulaic and then that's what becomes this industry right now is that you get music that's just formulaic as fuck mm -hmm. and <laughs> it really is i mean i, I don't know like the, the the thing is the problem with it is that that is what breeds success so an artist will essentially find a sound that works mm. and will repeat that sound with a few little changes yeah uh you know change the hook or you know just each track will sound very similar yeah um i'm particularly talking about tech house here because that's something that i work on a lot yeah but you you just hear it's just different iterations and just release loads of tunes that all sound the same but that people like fans seem to like that yeah you know like oh it, if you've got an artist with a really consistent sound uh like i suppose there's a, a border between consistency and sameness yeah. right so like i would say that you have a consistent sound yeah. actually but that's not a it's not a insult no, whereas yeah, yeah. a samey sound that like if somebody some artists have a samey sound so like yeah your your sound is consistent like you hear a record like that's a will clark record yeah and it's got that like chunkiness but it's more to do with the production the variation from track to track is massive you yeah. know like you might go for a big string hook or you might have like a chord stab yeah. you know that drives it or vocals that are different every time whereas some artists they clearly just use the same project switch something out and then ping it off to another label yeah. and release it. Yeah. And the thing is, it, it does really work, though. So they end up getting their tracks played loads and signing yeah. to loads of labels and having success. So, I, I think it works to a certain level, though. I think, I think it, there comes a point when that, that uh, formulaic side of things actually just stops working for you unless you're the person that's created that formula mm -hmm. or there's yeah. like there's let's say for instance there's like five people that like created that formula for that sound like mm. like let's say for instance fish right with fisher like he had that sound he made that sound and then everyone tried to copy him after mm -hmm. like Eric Prids made that sound and then everyone tried to copy him after. Um, Nobody succeeded. No, no, exactly. And that's the thing is like, there's people that, they, that people will get small success out of copying mm -hmm. or out of going with that same genre or that same formulaic sound, but it doesn't necessarily always last. <clears throat> um, but I also, I also don't know how artists do it when, they just, like you said, is they just make the same record over and over again, but they just change the hip hop sample to like 1995 to 1996. Yeah. Like, I, I don't, I don't know how people can sit down and be like, this is a banger. This is, I can't wait to play this because it's like, I don't know, but Hey, there's so many people that do it so well and yeah, are very successful. Mm -hmm. I guess that's, that's the cynical side, isn't it? Where it's, the, the, like success is uh, more important than uh, creativity. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know. Where do you stand on all the or so many tracks coming out being like remakes of uh, like nineties tracks? Mm. Or you know, where do you stand on that? <clears throat> um, I have like mixed views because I'm a killer for 
sampling old records. Um, yeah, like, do you think? But so, like, you there's some of the samples you use, yeah, like the big soul samples. Yeah. Where are you? Where are you digging up those acapellas from? You're not going to tell us, obviously. I'm not going to tell you that. Um, <laughs> they're either samples that I know, like from mm-hmm. old soul, old soul records, um, mm-hmm. or just YouTube. I just mm-hmm. go hunting on YouTube and yeah. go. I <clears throat> I watch a lot of films, so there's like films have great soundtracks. So I just go mm-hmm. through soundtracks. Um, I yeah, there's there's lots of that, but I I love sampling. We we're in house music. House music is all about sampling. Mm-hmm. For me, when I'm sampling, I want to sample something that. I can't really say this as well because Hallelujah is like my biggest record, which is obviously such a fucking famous house sample um, with Candy Staten. But most other samples I've sampled were like, no one has really heard of them. No one Mm -hmm. really knows where they're from, which is really important to me because it's like, how do I get a sample from a song that I love as the original? How do I make it then go make it my own? Mm-hmm. Um, like the hymn was an Aretha Franklin sample of her singing Amazing Grace in her film Amazing Grace um, but I don't think like you'd know it's Aretha Franklin but you wouldn't know that it was Amazing Grace mm-hmm. um, if you go and listen to that 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 film uh, but how do I feel about the records that a sampling big old house records. I have no issue with it if it's done really well. Mm. But I think there's a lot of and and obviously that's personal opinion. Like what's done, what what is done really well, I don't really know. Um, but there comes a point when it's like, oh, come on, guys, we've all heard this about ten times. Mm. Do something a little bit different if you want to sample it. Mm-hmm. Um, what what about you? I honestly don't know how I feel about it. I mean, I I think that there are there are some artists who it seems like the only music they release is a remix of a massive nineties yeah. dance tune, and they've done like seven or eight of them, and they've mm-hmm. all been quite successful. I think I, you know, and it's not even that there's this, this so there's like there's good and bad. Yeah. So some of them. The remixes are just taking whatever the hook is, sticking in the breakdown, mm. and then a tech house drop with a bit of a cut of the vocal. And it's like, well, it, sure, it's going to be effective on a dance floor, but it's just flipping, like, I don't know. Do, is it improving on it or even trying? Is it even trying to improve on yeah. the original? No, I don't think it is. You know, there's... Uh, but, yeah, like you say, the whole... Uh, like music, the music we make and the house music is like a massive part of it is sampling. Yeah. And it's a, it's really important. And you can sample something and build on it and make something new. And that that's when it becomes, you know, more like m- more creative again. Mm. And I think as long as there's a kind of creative intent behind it, then that's good. I think if it's just a cynical... yeah like cash grab or like, you know, trying to get exposure off the back of somebody's work without trying to create anything new for them, yeah. then that's uh, not, I don't know, then that takes it out away from it. 
and then I guess I'm opposed to that. So if there's some art to it, I like it. If not, then not. Yeah, totally. I think the thing that's really interesting though now is like the old house records, like kids that are going to clubs don't know that they're old house records. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is really interesting to me. Um, and I think to a certain extent, that's why I kind of like that some of them are being redone because mm-hmm. it's like, well, these kids don't have never heard these, the original records. They've never heard it. Like even with hallelujah, like with, with like, there was a lot of people that had never heard that hallelujah mm. record. Um, and I can guarantee you 90% that of people that knew the, the Lars vocal remix on defected the hallelujah don't have a clue the, of the original Candy Staten record that was on mm-hmm. like her hymns of God or whatever it it was it was. So there's something about that that I love, and the the, the younger kind of ravers are kind of getting to know these records. Mm-hmm. Something that really gets to me is why can't we make records like that anymore? Yeah. Why 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 uh, like for me is like I'm trying to write records that stand the test of time, that last. 20 years why can't we make records like they did then with those hooks and those samples and everything like that I, that's the thing that i'm i struggle with is that do you, think, do you think that that's the case then you think that there aren't records being made that will stand the test of time i think there is i think there's there's a massive amount of records that will stand the test of time but i also think that nostalgic sound that we all we all look back at right I, I don't think there's a single artist that doesn't look back at the nostalgia of the 90s um but it would be really interesting to like i don't think people are making records that are like that big like um like look, let's look at armin van helden like he's an absolute legend he's written some absolute bombs um is there anyone making records like he used to make like that th- that kind of um influential in the scene where everyone's playing them not mm. just like one genre like where oh. everyone's playing do you know like the, so there's a um a, there's a psychology uh, behind when the more you hear something, the yeah. more familiar it is, the more you like it. Yeah, which is, explains like really, really terrible records that mm. have done really well. Yeah, that you just hear them so much. It's yeah. it's a big part of how the pop charts works. And you know, if you get something on rotation on Radio One, that familiarity of that makes it sound better than it is. Totally. And actually, that that's a big it's a big part of like writing music. And if you, if you write something and listen to it over and over and over again, particularly this kind of applies to like up and coming producers who are learning and, you know, maybe take quite a long time on a project when you're really close to a record for a long time, writing it, 
you become so familiar with it that you think yeah. it sounds great. And then when you send it out to people, like, yeah, like, you know, I, <laughs> I see, right, I see this like really so fundamentally in, in mastering. Yeah. And it, so like one of the biggest records I ever mastered, I won't name the records, but go on, name it. Why can't you no, name it? <laughs> no, no, I, I won't name it, but like it, it was, it's a massive, like super catchy piano house okay. record. Absolute corker of a track. Now, when I got the uh, pre-master through first, there was two like awful mega bum notes in the vocal mm. that were clearly hitting flat. Yeah. They were like semitone off and like just sounded so bad. And I was like, and it's been through the A&R process with an A&R team with four or five people on it. It's been played out in clubs and nobody had picked up on this yeah. because everybody had heard it and just they were so Used close to it. To it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was like... Uh, guys, this is really out of tune. And they were like, what? And then, you know, it took me, I said, send me the vocal stem, and I corrected the two notes because they couldn't figure out which bit I was talking about. Yeah. I corrected it, sent it back over, and they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did nobody spot it? But it's basically because that repetition and hearing it so much, it kind of it blinds you to yeah, totally. how stuff sounds. But conversely, when you hear stuff loads, uh you it's so familiar that it's almost like it's well you mentioned it's nostalgia yeah it's like a comfort thing and a familiarity thing that's really something that our brains gravitate towards Mm. so those records yes they are great records but something that also you know something like good life by in the city for example that it's an amazing record and it has you know, like a good hook and everything, yeah. but also we, we've heard it so, so many much. times, yeah, yeah. And so right. we know that it's a great record, mm. but we've also heard it a lot, and it's familiar and it's nostalgic, and it comes on, and everybody buzzes yeah. when, when they come up when it comes on, which adds into that nostalgia and that warm feeling you get from hearing it. Mm. If that record was released now, would it have had the same uh, response? Uh, now I think. Things, something that's fundamentally different now to then is that the number of records yeah. that's coming out is so much less yeah. because producing a record costs a lot more. So which meant that, you know, you know like that, that track was in, made in a professional studio, mm. probably tracked vocally quite a few times. It was, you know, money was spent on making that record, yeah. but also they knew that that record would sell enough to make that money back. Mm. That's not the case now. Like you can make an amazing record, and maybe it will get you know a few million streams, but more likely, you know, it won't. Yeah. And so, do you invest all of that money in you know really like you know the soul vocals and stuff like that? You know, those if you listen to like old R and B records, they have vocal tracking and you know like so many different recordings yeah. and layering it up and like the production on the vocals from like 90s mm. early 2000s r&b is phenomenal yeah yeah but that that production costs money uh, to get it sounding that great whereas now so many artists have home studios and maybe don't have access to an engineer mm. and a massive ssl mixing desk and all that so there's been a sort of regression in terms yeah. of 
quality. Yeah, but that's because there's less money to invest in each individual track. Yeah. No, you're you're right, and you hit the nail on the head because I think the the thing that kind of stood out to me the most in that what you said was a few million streams, and it's like even a few million streams don't doesn't earn you anything nowadays. Like no. barely anything. Like I think. 10 million streams and you've earned a good chunk of change and but you're not going to live off that for for a year really um and i think that's the thing is that back in the day you could make actual money from it mm-hmm. like but also there wasn't every tom dick and harry releasing a record to kind of just mm-hmm. fog it like it's not. I think it's not even the fact that there's shit tracks and great tracks being released so often. It's just the amount of music that's getting released. I remember when Beatport, when Beatport first started, you couldn't, you couldn't get your music on Beatport because they were so exclusive. Mm-hmm. Like it was like cool to be on Beatport. Now we're in the business game. They want as much music as possible to be released as much as many times as, as they possibly can because one one person buying one record is great but one person buying or 10,000 people buying a single different record 10,000 records is is a lot more money and it's that's when the kind of the artists struggle i think so how I think how, that- how did you find it with like going into the mastering business um, because how long have you been doing mastering for? Um, with AMPM, like so, AMPM I started about six, seven, six or seven years ago. Okay, but I was mastering before. So the reason I got into it was because I used to A and R for a trans label. Yeah, this is like two thousand and must be like two thousand and three, two thousand and four, something like that. Um, and I signed a few tracks to them, and then uh, I, I got a master back from their mastering engineer and it, they paid like 15 quid for this master and in the middle of the breakdown as all trance tracks did at the time it had this massive big sub boom kick that went yeah and when that happened all the other sounds ducked yeah. to nothing and then like because of the bad mastering <laughs> and they, they just put it out and so when you know it got played out and in the middle of the track, all, everything disappears above from a huge kick drum, and then it all slowly fades back up. And I was like, what is that? Yeah. That is rubbish. I can do better than that. And I said to label, how much are you paying for mastering? They were like 15 pounds. I was like, okay, well, I'll do it for 10 pounds. Uh, I'll master my own stuff, you know, like, uh, you know, and I'll master other stuff on the label, save you a bit of money, and uh, I'll do a better job. Yeah. And that's how I got into it. And then I started... Uh, you know, mastering for a few more trans labels because mm. I was, you know, essentially undercutting my kind of closest competition. Yeah. Um, Motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so ruthless. Just like, well, you, this guy's charging £15. I'll charge £14.50. Uh, you know, but uh, at a certain point, uh, I got really good at it. Yeah. Like, you know, I think one of the things that... So there are mastering engineers out there who are um, high volume... I guess. Mm. So they do a lot of them. And I think, how do you do so many masters? You know, it's kind of, for me, each one takes half an hour to an hour. Yeah. uh, Dependent on, you know, various different factors. 
but part of it is like you you have to listen through the track and you have to you know figure out what's right and what's not right in it mm. and then feed back to the artists if if needs be and master it and then listen through it and check it on a couple of different things so these some people are just churning them out but i i was never doing i could never do that because i'm a perfectionist which yeah. is very annoying um and uh so yeah so i was i was I'd doing these masters but i got good at it and i think I'm a producer as well. Yeah. So producer and mastering engineer, they go hand in hand because I can explain technically what's going on yeah. because I can, I can write, I'm producing and mixing and everything. So that's why, you know, my, my feedback sometimes, sometimes come back, come back and it's super specific. It's yeah. like this frequency range turn it like knocked out 2dB or something like that, you know, mm. or, you, you know, there's so many different specifics. It's only possible to know how to fix them from um, actually being able to produce. Yeah. So there are some mastering engineers who are just mastering engineers and some who are producers. Like Robert Babich is a producer and a mastering engineer. And he's, you know, he's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, I went off on a tangent there. I forgot what you asked me. <laughs> I didn't really ask you anything, but it's great. <laughs> we, we, we were talking about... We, 15 years ago, that was the question. Yeah, we were talking about costs. Like what I was trying to get at was like the costs because from what I remember back when I first started writing and releasing music, mastering was expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and like going to a mastering house was it, it was going to cost you a good chunk of change um mm-hmm. but it's got cheaper over the years mm-hmm. um how did you kind of sit in that way like i need to make money but i also have to be like good value well yeah i mean i think the so that i was uh, I kind of rode the wave of the the mastering software mm. becoming really good and yeah. essentially pretty much indiscernible from the hardware. Yeah. So I, you know, the, all these big mastering studios in central London in Soho, yeah. they charged 75, 80, 100 quid for a master mm. even. Yeah. And they they were on an SSL desk and like the really good desks and the really good kit for a studio goes into like the hundreds of thousands of pounds to get out a mastering studio for the absolute top level Mm. but they don't just buy that outright it's essentially like a mortgage yeah so they have to pay back their thousands of pounds a month plus their business rates in their central london studio uh so they have to charge those rates yeah and it didn't necessarily the price didn't necessarily equate to yeah. a better master. And that's essentially what I kind of did. So I, I remember doing a master for um, one of the artists I was producing for, like engineering for at the time, mm. and assigned to Tool Room. And uh, I got chatting to Matt Smallwoods, who's the A&R yeah. at Tool Room, and just an all-round absolute legend. He's a legend, yeah. Um, and... Uh, we yeah we got chatting and I was like well I'll do some mastering for you and we could see how it goes and just pitched a, a price and they were paying like seventy pound a master or something yeah. like that I guess you know like they were going to like a really Metropolis you know high profile studio yeah, yeah. and I was like why don't I do some and you see how they are 
and you know you can kind of see where it goes from there and after about a month uh, i did all of the tour room stuff yeah. and i still do the lion's share of the tour room mastering and that's probably i don't know it must be like nine years yeah. something like that um and yeah that, that that was actually a bit of a, a big, big big break for me working mm. with such a big label and um you know mark knight who's obviously the uh um you know the kind of head of the label uh he was all, always kind of like sang my praises and recommended me to mm. people so you, you know recommended me to people like um booker shades yeah. and uh calvin harris yeah people like that you know so ended up you know they, they really helped me mm. in terms of, of recommending me but yeah so like my studio like i spent money on it and i made sure that i was up to date on everything i always got like really important thing i think is having really good headphones yeah okay. i was always spending loads of money on headphones and you know different monitoring setups so i spent quite a lot of money in terms of getting my setup right mm. but compared to the hundreds of thousands of yeah. pounds that the big studios are spending it's it's you know a drop in the ocean mm. uh so i didn't like they just they couldn't compete yeah and when i when i took tour room when I started working with Tool Room, they stopped working with this studio. They even said, like, oh, we can offer you a lower rate, but they couldn't offer as low a rate as I was doing. Yeah. So I did undercut them to the point where they lost that, yeah. that business. I guess it's the kind of march of um, the technology, really, isn't it? Yeah. That this, this older stuff, it has a prestige to it, and it has a like a, a bit of a kind of mystery to it and a magic to it. Like, you know, still all these producers who don't ever go anywhere near a gigantic SSL desk in a yeah. shiny studio when they're actually writing tunes will have their promo shots done in front of them of course, because it yeah. just looks so cool. Yeah. Um, but the reality of it is that software is phenomenal yeah. now. Yeah. Like, and it actually can do stuff that hardware can't do. Like, mm. In, in, to get a little bit geeky, like the, the limiters, the like the software limiters with the look ahead uh, function can essentially react to stuff in faster than totally. real time, you yeah. know. So that means that they can do things that hardware limiters aren't even capable of yeah. doing now. And that's that's a great... And they're of, so much more reliable to a certain extent, like mm -hmm. especially the, the old stuff. If you've got like an old, desk or an old compressor like it's not always going to turn on it's not always mm. going to work and that's the joys of hardware right it's like mm. synths like old synths they're not always going to be in tune um yeah. <clears throat> but when you're running a business it's got to be reliable it's got to be consistent yeah and like you know and, and a massive part of it as well is is the time it takes. Yeah. So like, the, the thing that I, like, I, when I'm doing a master, the thing I want to be spending the most amount of time on is listening to the track and, um, you know, like kind of really fine tuning it and making mm. sure that I'm getting the best from it. I don't want to then spend X amount of time just rendering stuff out, yeah. checking it and then having to render it out. So if you're using a desk and you have to render it all out in real time, and it's, you know, a lot of tracks I must for like eight, nine minutes. Yeah. So if you, each time you render it out in real time, it's nine, nine or 10 minutes, then you've got to go away, have a cup of tea, come back, you know, and that's, it, it eats into your product productivity yeah. time. So yeah, like I, I, you know, I'll do a, the master and render it out in two minutes. 
in which time I can type up the email yeah. saying, this is what's shit about your track and this is what's good. <laughs> you, yeah, because um, I remember um, I used to use Optimum Mastering um, in Bristol. Um, and oh, I forgot his name. Let me Google his name. Optimum. Do you know those guys, Optimum? No. Uh, fuck, I forgot his name. Really nice guy. His studio's unbelievable. Like, set up the Dolby 7.1 um, PMC stacks. Beautiful. Like, mm-hmm. he's, he runs everything digitally, but it's all digital hardware, really. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, he, he, like you were saying, he had costs of the building. He had costs of all of that. And his masters were great. Um, but when you're paying like 150 quid for a master and then you've got to pay for everything else and then you got this and that and you're just like, well, I want the records to sound as good as possible, but if somebody can do it better, that's better or the same, cheaper and quicker and getting changes because it's, because when you ask for changes, they have to kind of recall everything which is a process as well which you can recall that in a second mm-hmm. by loading up the project um it's kind of a no-brainer mm-hmm. it is it is now that software is caught up with hardware i mean uh, you know the, there is there are some things that hardware can do that software you know arguably can't or won't do as well distortion yeah, yeah but uh, you know I'm not really distorting people's masters. You're too not. Much. You shouldn't be as well. So it's like, <laughs> it's like, oh, this, do you know this needs just a shitload of distortion <laughs> on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I've not. I've not done that. Not yet. I might do that a couple of times today. See how it sounds. It's not on mine. Um, mate. Not on mine. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's it is. It's interesting. Like, I think um, for me, like the the workflow is important because. One of the things that definitely is the case is with a lot of mastering engineers, they use, they get sent the track, they master it, and they send it back. Yeah. And there isn't necessarily the same uh, back and forth. Yeah. But actually, for me, it's almost like uh, makes makes life easier for me. Yeah. If I, if something's really sticking, up, I I did a little post about um, low end on my Facebook a couple of days ago. Mm. I don't know if you do any like um, like links or anything for the podcast, yeah, but I'll, s- I'll send you this like little bit that I have um, kind of a breakdown of how to do like some common mistakes or common pitfalls with low end. Yeah. So this feedback I give really really regularly on tracks, and part of it is to help the track, help the artist produce track better, so that the outcome is better. Yeah. But also, it does make like if if we can iron out those issues quite easily in the pre-master, mm. then it does make my life easier as a yeah. as a mastering engineer. You know, like people want dynamics and they want like loudness, and those two are difficult to get to get at the same time, right? But with a few little tweaks to the mix, it's possible to get dynamics and loudness. Yeah, um, and you know, one of the, one of the really common things and it seems to have happened like 50 times over the last couple of weeks is producers having massive long tails on their kick drum mm. 
And that's like, so for techno, that's fine because you want like a big rumbly low end. Yeah. But for house, if you have a punchier kick drum, so a shorter low end, like shorter tail, and it opens up a lot of headroom and a lot of space in the, um, like in, in the, to, for, for you to actually push things louder and you, you've got more space for your bass yeah. line and all that sort of thing. So I just was like, well, I, I seem to be feeding this back to artists a lot. I'll put a Facebook post up and then I can just copy that text and say to like artists, when they send a track through with those similar issues, I can say, I just put this post up and this might help. Yeah. And I'll, you know, it's, it's, it's been quite useful in terms of speeding up the process totally. for mastering as well, which is good. Yeah. To, to be fair, like when I, now we've got a bit of a relationship going, I always send you my records beforehand and be like, I'm struggling with this. Like, can you give me some pointers on this or what's your thoughts on this? And like nine times out of 10, you give me the answers I want to hear and it just makes the whole process so much easier. Mm. Um, and it's, I use you as my second pair of ears, really. Um, it's really important for me is like having somebody that technically, because I wouldn't class myself as like a technically great producer um, I, like or engineer. Um, I know what sounds good and I know what's going to work in my sets. Mm -hmm. But technically, I, I don't, mate, the amount of, I literally never compress anything. I I like I never do ever ever anything that should technically be right. Mm -hmm. Um my mix downs are terrible. But it That's definitely not the case. It, <laughs> it is though when you can when I compare it to other people. Like it's but it it's a process. Like for us, like you're give me pointers and it will make it better. Or you mm -hmm. might mix down a record. Um or you might mix down the record, send it back to me. Then I'll go, actually, no, I need to do this, this, and this on my, on the record. And then be like, actually, can you, do, can you master this? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the whole thing is that I think with what you've done at AMPM is like, you've given a bit of a, I don't know. It's, it's, it's more than just mastering. Mm -hmm. It's, it's really important, man. It's, I, I absolutely love it. And like, I talk your praises to everybody about, Thanks. about, what you got kind of offer and it really annoys me when people go to other people and get a shit job because i'm like i told you you should have gone should have gone here mm. um but again it, it goes back to that keeping like building a crew and having like the best of the best working with you because mm. i think that's how you get the best like i'm not I would never master my own records. Mm -hmm. Like, so who I need to find somebody that's the best of the best. I think the first record you mastered for me was, I think it was techno, not techno, which was me and bot, mm. which came out on, um, shadow child's label. I think you mastered that for me the first time. Mm. I can't really remember. Um, I'd be able to go back and find out what the first one is because I keep every project, mastering project I've ever done, I've still got. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. that'd be interesting. But I, I think that was the one. And I, the track that we I did it with, I did it with my mate Bot, Andrea. And he's technically an unbelievable like mixed guy. Unbelievable. Mm. And when you sent the masters over, he was like, I don't know how he's done it. I don't know how he's got got th this amount of 
dynamics, but also slammed it. Where and that was when that was through the time when slamming your records was like key. Yeah. Um, before it kind of everyone chilled out a little bit, but f- like it's just so important to have somebody else in your production team for me anyway to like that can tell you no mate this sounds shit you need to do this to make it sound better it's like <laughs> I, I, i'm very careful about the wording to not go we're all a load of rubbish she fix it by doing this i think you know like what you know you touched on like uh, it but it, it's basically the things know the things that you're good at but know yeah. your limitations totally. and when you recognize your limitation or when you know that there's something that you can look to someone else to, to help you mm. get it bang on. And that's the way to go. I mean, uh, you know, I do it for like the, the music is like my domain, I think. And I'm quite, um, I'm, I'm almost a bit like precious about it. Like, it, mm. you know, but then I, I have sent stuff out. So actually I, I brought on another, uh, engineer to AM PM uh, oh, cool. like last year. Um, so, my mate Tim Cullen and he oh, I know Tim oh, dear, yeah you yeah. know Tim yeah. yeah so he's um so he runs a like a DJ agency yeah um and like they do function DJ like mm. functions and all sorts and obviously because of the pandemic that just completely Stopped. died to death and um so I actually you know when we when we were just having a brief chat before the um before we started the, the podcast I said about how a couple of people I've been working with had essentially taken like got information out of me and then yeah. set up a rival yeah. um mastering studio and that's that's happened actually three times over yeah. the last like 15 years uh, even to the point where some of them actually uh went after my client list but they knew who I was working with and they yeah. emailed them and said I, I I've learned some stuff from Andy I can do it the same but for 10 pounds cheaper you know and so i was always so i was super cagey about yeah. uh, giving stuff away or like and i never i was like i'd never worked with anybody because what if they you know i taught them how to do it and then they just went uh and set, set up their own mastery mm, studio yeah but then with tim it was a logical thing because we've been friends for you know probably about nearly 15 years and uh, he's a, he's such a good guy, yeah, and he's really trustworthy. And obviously, because his business uh, dropped off during um, the pandemic, yeah. and because mine went crazy, I was like, I need some help. Yeah. And Tim, can you help me out? And uh, train trained him up on the, the mastering. And actually, that's great because it made me realise that I don't have to be a one man band yeah. just doing everything myself. And like, I was a bit of a control freak, maybe. Yeah. And now I'm like, okay. Tim's actually he's he's smashing it like he he picked it up really fast again because he's a really good producer yeah. I think that's fed into his ability to hear things that he needs to hear and feedback in a mm. in a kind of easy to understand way yeah um but I, so he's he's taken a bit of the pressure off me in terms of the workload but it's I've also had been able to send tracks over to him for him to master yeah, and yeah. him feedback and say you know so that's been really nice as well mm. you know like uh but having that realization that i don't have to do it all myself and i don't need to be in control and that actually some people are going to be better at stuff than totally. i am 
that is a, a really good realization. And I, I will, you know, I feel like that was quite a valuable lesson to learn. I think it's so important because I think <clears throat> like what you said with other people kind of taking what you've taught them and then starting their own thing. I think that's, it's going to happen. It's normal, right? It's like, there's there's uh, there's producers out there that I've sent them a record that I've done. They've asked to do a collab on it. I've said no, and then they've just gone and made a cardboard copy of it. <laughs> like it happens. Mm. Um, but my view on it uh, after the like the initial uh, angry emotions or what, sad emotion, whatever the emotions are to start with, uh, when once I processed it, I'm like, well. First of all, they've not done a better job than me. Mm -hmm. Second of all, they're copying a Will Clark record, which is exactly the same for mastering. Like every mastering engineer is different. Every, everyone's ears are different. Like you might use exactly the same tools, but how it comes out is completely different to what somebody else would. No one mm -hmm. has your ears. And I think that's, it's, it was, what's the word? Um, what's the saying? It's, uh, it's like copying is the is the best form of is is the imitation is the highest form of flattery. That's the yeah. one, yeah. And it's so true. And mm -hmm. until after after you get over that process of someone's trying to screw me over business wise, and you realize that's never going to happen, like it's like okay, cool. They can they can they can have everything. Mm -hmm. I can tell them everything because they're never going to do it as well as I am. Mm -hmm. And they're yeah, never, they're, they're never you. They might do something better than you, but they still can't do what you do better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I, you know, kind of like after a while, it kind of went. Yeah, I, I think the bit that really bugged me was that they they went after my client. Totally. List. Yeah. You know, I had a had a list of all the people I work with on uh, on my website, and yeah. they essentially emailed them all the ones that they knew. They knew like, yeah. So that that. You know, yeah, I suppose they're starting up a rival company is okay to do. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's business at the end of the day. Totally. There's, there's ways of doing it honorably, I suppose. I totally agree. I totally agree. I think it's just, for me, it's just trying to keep so insular and not, and it's taken me years and I still don't, I still haven't cracked it and I'm still trying to crack it. It's like, how can I stop? looking at others and look at myself mm -hmm. and and how like me realizing that because this artist is doing that i don't have to be doing that if that mm -hmm. makes sense um yeah. it's it's weird it's 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 really strange but i guess that kind of goes hand in hand with business as well is like the business generally the business that does it first does it the best um and then a bigger corporate corporation goes and buys them out Mm -hmm. because they want the good ideas from from the kids yeah um, yeah yeah like somebody will do something unique that maybe the inertia of big business doesn't allow yeah and rather than you, you know that that innovation comes from smaller companies totally. or setups yeah that's definitely the case totally man. what's it what's the tattoo what's the song on your tattoo candy statin you got the love my all-time favorite track same is it yeah. cool i know we've got a tattoo of it though <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah, yeah no. that is my all-time favorite yeah it's classic absolutely classic mm -hmm. um dude we've just done an hour and a half and it's 
gone by fucking quick. It has, yeah. Um, I don't really think we've covered everything. No, we? We, we really haven't, but I'm going to piss my pants and we <laughs> yeah. should probably get cracking. Um, how can people follow you as AMPM? How can people get your track, their tracks mastered by you? Um, and also how can people follow you as an artist as well? Um, you can email me info at ampm.audio mate i've got to say i love your um your auto replies on your emails yeah. every time i'm like fuck's sake another auto reply from andy <laughs> yeah I, I have been away quite a lot recently <laughs> no it's like going... it's every time i email you and then i get a response like pretty much straight away but i'm just yeah, like the auto reply is to keep at bay the people who so everybody thinks that their track is incredibly urgent oh, of course yeah yeah which it isn't so yeah. it's like okay i'll put this out of reply and then hopefully they'll go and say oh it's not that important yeah, so yeah. <laughs> give me a bit of time um yeah so you can find like ampm.audio is my website but find me on facebook uh you can ping me a message there um in terms of the music i make i guess the trilucid stuff is the kind of uh proggy stuff that i'm putting out at the moment um and yeah that's if if you've got any questions just ping me an email sick man thank you so much for coming on it's yeah been, thank you for having me on will it's been, been a wicked conversation i loved it um stay on but i'm just gonna end up big love man keep safe Cheers, man. and that's a wrap um big love dude that was amazing thanks for listening hope you enjoyed it don't forget to share it don't forget to hit subscribe um keep safe see you next time Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.